Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to another edition of A Reason for Hope. Reason for Hope, for those of you coming across our broadcast for the very first time, is our daily journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time, and that's certainly where you come in. It's your questions on the most important issues any human being will ever consider. Having a personal relationship with God as that relationship is revealed in His divinely inspired Word, the Bible, make up the content of each and every edition of A Reason for Hope. So uh, jump on in. There's a number of different ways you can uh, get questions to us, aren't there? Yes, if you want to join us online, you can email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you would like to note proper spelling and engage with us face-to-face, our website is calvarychristianfellowship.com. The Calvary is spelt C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, as opposed to reference to horseback, that is the mountain on which Jesus was crucified, and the reference and term for the website will also be included in calvarychristianfellowship.com under the Watch Live tab. You'll be sent to a page and website titled ccftucson.online.church, where we are live streaming and counting down to the next broadcast when it unfolds, and our biweekly Bible studies going through Luke and Revelation, at least at the time of this recording. Yeah. If you want to send us questions there, it will, of course, be something we can monitor live as the broadcast is unfolding, but if you are only able to touch and go, which is becoming the wisest approach to internet use, feel free to make a note of the email address and listen at your leisure. If you'd like post recordings or perhaps organization to keep track of what days they were uploaded and maybe what topics were covered, our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope, and Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Give us a like and subscribe, and the advantage is that you'll be notified when we are going live in your respective time zone. However, since we don't control when or why we are taken off of those platforms, and it has happened before, we want to encourage you, if we are not broadcasting and we don't give you prior notice, join us on our website. They can't ban us on our own platform. Keep us in prayer that, of course, we will be speaking the truth in love, but with the emphasis and no compromise to truth. And speaking of prayer, we also want to start doing that ourselves before getting into your questions. So let's. Okay. Uh, Lord, thank you so much that you love us and thank you for your presence here with us, not only with us, but with every person that is joining us here today. Thank you for your promise. You'll never leave us and never forsake us. And Lord, we thank you so much that your truth is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, uh, especially in these uh, confusing times where it seems like so many people are stumbling. Uh, Help us to be people that come away from this broadcast, not only with a greater appreciation of what your word has to say about our lives, but who your word ultimately points us to, and that is having that personal relationship with you. It's so beautiful and makes every other relationship we have worth having. Thank you for this time. We commit it into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. That is true. Now, there was an interesting question sent along to us. This is regarding the canon, uh, the individual who sent it along wants to know which canon is the right one. Why should I have faith in the men who decided on this particular canon? So there's two assumptions there. And from what I tell 
can tell, the Catholic canon was set in the 4th century, but the Protestant 66 wasn't standardized till the 19th century when the Apocrypha was removed. I'm not sure about the Orthodox canon. There are, of course, many less popular canons to choose from. Um, not much of that was accurate, but we'll take it piece by piece. Yeah. Let's first start with the dictionary. What does the word canon mean? Well, uh, the word canon comes from a Greek word kanon, which literally meant a measuring stick. And uh, when we talk about the canonicity of Scripture, uh, what we're not talking about is, uh, it, although it is part of the discussion, uh, is not, uh, say, a uh, church council that got together and decided which books were in and which books were out. Uh, a lot of the people say that was hap that happened at the Council of Nicaea, which it did not. You uh, mean Dan Brown lied to me? Yeah, Nicaea did not really deal with the canon of Scripture. The Council of Chalcedon did. But uh, all they really did at the Council of Chalcedon was recognize what had been pretty much currently accepted for the past about oh, two, three hundred years or so. Uh, J.I. Packer, uh, the uh, famous theologian, once put it this way, the church no more gave us the canon, that is the list of divinely inspired books in the Bible, than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the law of gravity. All they did was recognize what God in fact had done. And so when we talk about the canon of scripture, uh, what we talk about is a series of standards that were applied to a, uh, a number of, uh, of books. Uh, you know, again, uh, the uh, idea uh, behind the, that church leadership, uh, you know, didn't decide these things, uh, you know, I think could be a little misleading. Uh, the uh, early church did accept these things, but based uh, their decisions, particularly in the New Testament, uh, on which books were considered to be divinely inspired, uh, based on some pretty basic standards. First of all, uh, apostolic authority. In other words, was a book written by an apostle or a direct associate of an apostle? Now, why would that be important? Because, uh, again, Jesus gave to his apostles uh, the ability to uh, share the message of who he was and, and what he had come to do. So they were eyewitnesses to the right. things that they reported. And no, what we're talking about right now is the New Testament canon, which unfortunately for the individual that asked the question is universal across every denomination apart from cultic groups. So when we're talking about Orthodox, Catholic, or Christian, the councils that were gathering together were recognizing the same 27 books of the New Testament that we still read today. Right. And it was first There's and most... no difference in the uh, Roman Catholic and Protestant canons as far as the New Testament is concerned. So what is the difference? Well, and we'll build on this point as well from the ground up. It was important to establish these by first understanding the information either came from an eyewitness of the things they were reporting, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, right. and the significance therein. So starting with reliable sources, and this is again across the church, there is no controversy on the New Testament canon, not just from apostolic authority, but what else for the new? Okay, uh, the second thing was, uh, what were the particular books free from errors historically? In other words, if God had divinely inspired these books, they would not, uh, say, contain statements uh, that were 
easily uh, falsifiable in terms of a historical sense or a geographical sense or a political sense. That was another standard. The other was, uh, did uh, any of these books contradict the clear teaching of Jesus and his apostles contained in other books? You know, in other words, there were already, uh, by the uh, end of the first century, uh, individuals that were writing spurious books, uh, giving their accounts of the life of Jesus uh, the uh, cachet of having an apostle having written them, but uh, you could easily tell the true from the false by taking a look at the content of these books. And of course, whether or not the author who produced this new information had already been dead for almost a century at yeah, that point. Yeah, exactly, like the Gospel of Thomas or, or other books. One of the more well-known early ones, but we note that these things weren't thrown out of the Bible. They were compared to what was already recognized and dismissed because they didn't measure up. They didn't fit the canon, the yeah. measuring stick. Yeah, and uh, you know the uh, the third uh, quality was that there is a supernatural quality to them, that the church in general found these books to be uh, divinely inspired, that they would produce spiritual growth in the lives of people, and hence be accepted uh, pretty much across the board in early churches. Now, so, as far as any controversy that proceeded through the ages, if he's going to set the, I guess, not the bar, but the start at the 4th century to the 19th century, there was a 2nd century question as to whether two books, the ones that I at least can name off the bat, the Shepherd of Hermas and others, where the letters of the apostles, of course, were presented because they met one of the standards, right. right, of whether or not this belongs in our Bibles. But the letter from the apostles, the Decalogue, I believe it was called? The, the Dace. Dace, yeah, and yeah. it started with a D. Yeah. Uh, that was in question because it came from an apostle, but when clarified by their immediate followers and students, their disciples, the disciples of Jesus' disciples, they said, oh, no, that wasn't scripture. That was just clarification on how to spot a false teacher. You and I have written stuff on that even today. Yeah. And likewise, if we look at the shepherd of Hermas, it again has that same muster. Just because a story was written doesn't mean that it's scripture. Now, that's what's going to tie us into something key. So when it comes to Roman, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, you name it, the same 27 books in the New Testament, apart from obvious cultic groups like Joseph Smith, Jehovah's Witnesses and their retranslation, and so forth, these all maintain consistent canon for the New Testament. Now, that was also true of the 39 books of the Old Testament going all the way to the 4th century. Why? Because as we note in the New Testament, right. which is recognized across the board, what advantage then has the Jew, this is Romans chapters 2 through 3, much in every way, for to them it was committed the oracles of God. They used the Jewish scriptures, the ones recognized by them as scripture, as an authority. Right. And it wasn't until the 14th century, towards the beginnings of the Protestant Reformation, that books from the Apocrypha were not removed, as the questioner said were removed in the 19th century, but rather introduced around 1,100 years after the supposed canon had already been founded. So some facts need to be clarified here. Yeah, in the 15th century. Now, the Apocrypha, which means, as opposed to apocalypse, which means to reveal, means to conceal. These books were considered by the Jews, who not only wrote them, yeah. <laughs> but also those who examined them in later days. We'd note Esdras, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, 1st through 5th Enoch, and many others. These books were not considered canon by the Jews who wrote 
them. Why? Because as was stated, along with the New Testament canon, some principles carried over. Obviously, there weren't Old Testament apostles, not in that sense, but there were Old Testament prophets. And a prophet had to be compared to the first man who was basically had his feet held to the fire, but didn't burn up, when it came to claiming to speak for God in the form of writing. God had spoken to people throughout history, but not in that form. So when Moses, good old Moisha, was basically asking God at the burning bush, how will I know, how will they know that you have sent me? He not only gave him his covenant name, but from that time forward showed miracles publicly verified introductions to the normal workings of nature to show that God was speaking behind this man. And just like God is also expected to get his facts right and to be consistent with his character, all this was put in documentation in the fifth book of the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy chapter 18, in noting what has the Lord spoken, what's scripture, and what isn't. First, accuracy. Second, consistency. Third, accountability. If you failed one of these standards, you would be stoned to death. Capital punishment dissuaded false prophets. And then finally, public miracles, whether that was in the form of predictive prophecy or in interventions in nature. The ones who were most prominently known for that were Moses, Elisha, Elijah, and a few others. But noting the majority of our Old Testament is built on that credibility. Did it meet the standard of Moses? Esdras was false, not just because it includes some iffy information historically about the goings-on of Assyria at that time, it's what it marks in its note in the adventures of this individual and the Archangel of Healing, who doesn't exist, the point of emphasis is what? That not only is this inaccurate, not only did the author himself not claim to be a prophet of God, but what? No miracles backed up this information as far as the healings that took place in the story. They were reported, but they weren't verified to anyone who was documenting them. And also noting the events that took place in the 8th century were written down in the 2nd century. No one alive was there to verify them. That's important. The same was noted for the first 39 books of the Old Testament. That's why Esdras, for example, isn't in there. We look at Enoch. Well, Enoch goes back to the time of Adam and noting his Uh, I guess, adventures in all of the insights into the supernatural realm that too many ministries like to give more credit to than they're due. A, the authors never claimed this was divinely inspired revelation. B, they were never tested for a claim they never made. And finally, on top of the inaccurate information held within, what was absent? No verification. All of the information right. that's being given in there, on top of the fact it wasn't written by an eyewitness, no one was around during Enoch's time to verify that information. It was written in the second century BC, not the 6,000s yeah. BC. Yeah. <laughs> no, at that point, it's talking about things in a fictional context, which, by the way, is allowed. But much like anything else that we note about the Bible today, the Chosen series and so forth, yeah, there's controversy, but we're not going to slap on the creative license of those TV shows and put it in our New Testament. Why? Not verified by an eyewitness, not tested according to the standard of a prophet, Old or New Testament. But then something happened. Those pesky little, oh wait, there weren't Protestants at this time yet, Catholics 
interestingly enough, started asking questions about the issues of indulgences, the issues of these cardinal versus venial sins, and other secondary issues as far as political structure, and wanted to have public uh, discourse and debate about it. But instead of being rationally talking people, like most in the Middle Ages at this time, globally, by the way, they decided to put them under arrest and threatened them. Shut up, they explained. Yes. (laughs) So what happened? Well, the Protestant Reformation, the protesting of these movements in the Catholic Church began, and thus the church splits were taking place. Now, there were um, elements borrowed from the Muslim tyranny, and of course the Inquisitions were founded to silence it in certain ways, others in just basically political pressure and threats. But as it varied and as it intensified, these were the sort of things they started to make steps to do. On top of the sword, they also used the pen. And what was the majority of their influence in that regard? It was the Council of Trent, where the books of the Apocrypha that were not recognized as divinely inspired scripture by the Jews who wrote them and the Jews who continued to preserve them as interesting historical writings nonetheless or even the roman catholic church prior to the time of the council of trent all the way up till that century what did they do well we got a new revelation and as the authority of the church i'm summarizing of course that was now the council went but they said these books are now recognized as canon why because it gave answers to the good questions that were being asked by the protestants sola scriptura scripture alone where is this in the bible sola fide sola deus gloria and on it goes But when they added these books, it was not only in the vaguest sense justifying issues like indulgences, like prayers to the dead, like iconography, and um, what was the word? Um, The, uh, I guess, concerns over certain practices involving, um, not indulgences, I mentioned that already. It'll come to me in a moment. Well, prayers for the dead, uh, indulgences. uh, Purgatory, that's what I was thinking. The idea of purgatory, yeah. Yeah, so... Those were vaguely mentioned or alluded to in these fictional writings, and so they used them as justification to those who were protesting. Now, obviously, the denominations that spurred forth weren't angels and saints either, not in a moral or ethical sense, but when we're talking about the establishing of the canon, whoever told you, and I can think of a few, but all of them are still held to the same standard of accountability, that the Protestants removed the Apocrypha from the canon in the 19th century is lying to you. Also note the introduction of the Apocrypha in the 14th century was predicated on fraud because they didn't have answers to good and legitimate biblical questions. And if we go through the history of the canon, whether you use Roman Catholic sources, Orthodox sources, or Protestant sources, noting this point, but uh, continuing with the chagrin, we need to understand that the canon has been extremely consistent from the second century when Christians could actually, and without threat of their lives, peacefully gather together in order to clarify these things with more information rather than less, but going all the way to the time where political expediency was the motivation for the Catholics, not for the Protestants that's when the canon was actually being messed with. And again, we will be happy to address further questions on this issue, but the point still stands. None of this information was accurate apart from you spelled canon properly. But make sure that when you're getting this information, just like when you get it from us, don't take their word for it. Look this up. There have been plenty of fantastic books that have been written on how we got the Bible. One, uh, I think, has a very creative title, uh, How We Got the Bible. (laughs) That would be a start but also note as well, we're not here to hide anything. In fact, we'd be more honored to expose these things. 
if on the other hand you're being manipulated into dismissing those pesky Protestants, or maybe just clarifying what a Catholic friend told you, it's not accurate. Yeah, if you want to read a great book on the subject, I'd highly recommend Dr. F.F. F. Bruce's book, The Canon of Scripture, available on Amazon or any other site you want to go to. Not a long book, uh, but uh, Dr. Bruce uh, does a wonderful job of showing exactly how we got the Bible that we have today. So let us know if that helps you out. And again, I'll refrain from names because that's a note of correction. Uh, question from Nina, who uh, encountered a street screecher <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> creature. yeah, to uh, I guess, uh, be as, uh, I guess, candid as possible. But they were telling her that she was going to burn in hell for attending a Justin Bieber concert, as if the concert wasn't punishment enough. I'm joking. And... Uh, they also said that all the churches are hypocritical if they aren't doing what we are doing, forsaking everything and following Jesus. I told him I was a Christian, and you are a fake Christian, they said. So you run into the, the street screecher. Right. What is the best way to not only keep things in balance, but also to keep things civil, keep things informed, and also accurate? Yeah, you know, if uh, you do run into an individual that is uh, kind of coming after you in that respect, Nina, uh, you know, first of all, you need to ask yourself uh, a question. Uh, is this conversation I'm entering into going to go anywhere positive? Uh, oftentimes, uh, that's not what happens. Uh, some of these street preachers that I've encountered, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush because I've done open-air evangelism before, and it can be done in a way uh, that is respectful, uh, you know. Uh, I, I guess uh, the thing that I would say is uh, open-air uh, evangelists uh, have a, a common spiritual flaw to them in that, uh, first of all, they can be very aggressive uh, in terms of, uh, you know, declaring other people's sins. Uh, they would say they're being like John the Baptist or others, and this is, uh, this is holiness preaching and not compromising. Uh, but uh, the other thing that you'll run into them uh, with them, and uh, it really is an occupational hazard, is the fact that they're out there, the fact that they're catching all this abuse, obviously, from crowds that are being provoked uh, by their, um, their indictments and so forth. They tend to be a bit on the proud side. Uh, they, they tend to make statements like, uh, unless you're doing what we're doing, you're not a real Christian you know, or you're, you're just a, a fake and a phony and, and so on. Uh, you know, the thing that I would say is this, okay, how does the Lord want us to share our faith? And do the antics, the tactics of street preachers in general, not in totality, but in general, does it really fit this description? You know, uh, the name of our program here uh, is called A Reason for Hope. And uh, one of the things, uh, with the reasons that we chose this title is because we want to present uh, a reason for the hope that is within us. And there is a scripture that we base this on that I think can give you some insight here, Nina. In 1 uh, Peter chapter 3, in verse 15, we read this, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Now catch this with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they d defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. 
Now notice how we are to share the good news of Jesus Christ with meekness and fear. The, the, the word meekness uh, literally means strength under control. It was a word that was used to describe the process of training a warhorse for battle so that it would be instantly responsive to its master. So when an individual is coming across as anything but meek, you know, really proud, boastful, condemning of other people. Even at best, defensive, on edge. Yeah, I, you know, I question not their sincerity, because you got to be sincere to be out there, but I question the scriptural nature of what they're doing, because when you go out there and you just start blasting people, well, first of all, um, you know, I guess if you talk to any crowd of individuals that were gathered on, say, 4th Avenue in Tucson or uh, Mill Road in Scottsdale or something like that, you'd probably be able to say, there are some of you out here who are drunkards, and then you could talk about what you think about drunkards and so on. You might think that you're being very spiritual by doing that, but uh, the, the question is, are you really building bridges or not? Uh, you know, when people walk away from an encounter like this, like yours, uh, Nina, where they aren't really sharing the gospel so much with non-believers or trying to build bridges with non-believers as much as they're trying to identify believers that don't say live up to their particular standards i think the meekness and fear the fear of god not the fear of man uh it, the standard there just doesn't line up you know when i was uh, especially at the u of a we used to have these street preachers would come through on a regular basis and they would set up on the U of A mall and they'd uh, get a big uh, stink going. And I used to feel so embarrassed about that because I wanted to share my faith on campus. I wanted to share my faith in the fraternity that I was a part of. Uh, but, uh, you know, I just felt like these guys were setting us back, you know, uh, verifying a lot of the stereotypes that I was trying to work against uh, in that set of circumstances. But I discovered something. Well couple things. First of all, there are open-air evangelists who I feel do a great job of uh, presenting the gospel. Cliff Connectly, for instance, with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, sets up, he'll just make a few opening remarks, and then he will get involved with answering questions in an open-air environment. And I've had the opportunity to be able to uh, go along and uh, share uh, with Cliff on a couple of occasions, uh, one at the uh, University of Wisconsin at Madison, very liberal campus. And uh, one of the things that I really learned from him was this, the goal of doing this presentation and engaging uh, with people in a way that's respectful, in a way that, uh, that attempts to really answer questions and so forth, uh, was to make Jesus an issue on campus. And, and the way that the outreach would be set up would go something like this. You know, Cliff would stand up and he'd share a few things and he'd get involved with some of these discussions with campus Marxists and different individuals. And uh, it would create a stir. And uh, the real ministry, uh, according to Cliff, and I think this is fascinating, wouldn't happen necessarily between him and the crowd, but uh, the individual intervarsity uh, chapter that would invite him in or the other Christian groups that would support uh, the endeavor would have people in the crowd who would say, well, what do you think about this guy? You know, or what do you think about what he's saying? And they, they would engage people within the crowd one-on-one -on -one talking about the truth of Jesus. And that's really where you saw quite a bit of the, the fruit take place there. You know, I, I did a similar outreach at the University of New Mexico. We had a debate uh, with a, uh, a Wiccan high priest there and invited people out 
to that. And then we had a Q&A deal at a uh, movie theater uh, right across the street from UNM in Albuquerque. And uh, the thing that I discovered was that uh, most of the really impactful ministry was not necessarily what I was saying or even the debate that I had uh, with the Wiccan, but uh, it was along that same line with individuals that got into conversations with people afterwards and Christians being able to demonstrate to other people that the Christian faith is not just rational, it is uh, satisfying, it is, uh, it is the, the answer to our deepest spiritual needs because it comes from God and, and that God can change people's lives if, if they're open to his message. So, you know, when I, I saw that, you know, I thought that was a, a really good thing. Now, what, hap- what do you do when you see somebody doing it wrong? Uh, there's even a way to overcome that. And I finally figured this out over the years. Instead of just wincing and uh, going, oh, gosh, you know, this person's really making my ministry a lot tougher. You know, what I'd do would be I'd, I'd get in the crowd and do the same thing that I learned from Cliff Connectly. I'd just say, hey, what do you think about this guy? Oh, I think this guy's, you know, just a real judgmental nut, you know, or, or something. And I'd say, you know, isn't it amazing how different uh, Jesus is than all of that? Yeah, and then you'd be able to engage in a conversation and talk about uh, the, the real message rather than a false message. So, you know, A, Nina, um, don't let somebody that uh, kind of has their own axe to grind or I don't know whatever reasons they might be out there putting people down and, and uh, you know, just... Uh, uh, you know, adopting that approach. I, I wouldn't take that personally. They don't mean it personally. They don't know you personally. To your own master, you stand or fall. That's the most important thing I'd share with you. Yeah, and obviously rolling with the punches when you get a personal and loveless insult like that, obviously there is no goal of correction or, or compassion for you as an individual. There's a lot of pride there in just tearing someone down for its own sake. When it comes to, I guess, keeping in perspective, not only the same kind of grace that you would want to be shown should you be caught up in your pride and be that position, is to understand exactly what had just happened with my father would see the uh, street preacher slash screecher. I keep tripping over my words with my joke. The point he made is this. You look at that individual and say, oh no, now they're going to have that basically stereotype in their minds that so that whenever they think of the Christian, right. now they're going to think of me. Well, understand that the same mistake is happening on both sides, because if you've ever been in a situation where you've willfully and deliberately put yourself out there with an affirmative statement of truth and entirely with the motive of love right. and then been blasted for it, what is the temptation? Now everyone who's the atheist or the hedonist or the just not Christian is going to be wrapped up mentally under that one umbrella, and whenever you hear someone who's not a Christian, what do you say? Oh, that's another one of those people that just hates me because I loved them. And that bitterness is going to fester. So when that then influences your speaking, it's not only going to have no off switch towards the non-believer, but it's also not going to have an off switch towards you as a fellow believer. Where that individual was at, and again, this is where you can pray for them and have grace at least to not take what they said 
said personally as a um, you know authoritative statement uh, ex right. cathedra right? Right. right but to say oh, that guy he's probably or girl whoever it was uh, is probably dealt with far too many people that day or at least that uh, ministry time and it's really made an impact god help me not to a end up like that but b meet that person where they're at and bring them back to you because we're not seeing a lot from either angle remember that mistakes happen both ways and we can learn from them even if we're in this case the victim of them make sure that you don't associate with that broad a brush and that's going to help in evangelism but it's also going to clarify perspectives so that you can take with grace the kind of people who are quite frankly in the flesh even though they're doing things in the spirit so yeah yeah all right. Um, question from Isaiah, who wants to know what the Eastern Lightning Church oh. is all about. Oh, yeah. And oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> they're uh, they're, they're some, a Christian group. They, they are an interesting group. They started in China, kind of uh, got their street cred from being formerly banned by the Communist Party and persecuted there. Uh, moved here to the United States. They've got uh, major headquarters in San Francisco and New York. Uh, they're also in Hong Kong, although I'm sure that's changing just because of the nature of the government there. But uh, the Eastern uh, Lightning Church bases their name on a scripture from Matthew chapter 24 uh, and verse 26. Well, actually, uh, they skip verse 26. They go to verse 27. It says, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So they are a, a doomsday cult, if you will. And the reason I call them a cult is this. Their leader, who is a woman, and I will not attempt to pronounce her name. It's a very long Chinese name. Uh, their leader claims to be the Messiah for our day. Claims to be Almighty God. And uh, claims to be the second coming of Christ. And they said that Yahweh was the God for the Old Testament. Jesus was the God for just New Testament times. But their particular leader is God for our day and for our era. era. Um, yeah, they deny, uh, for instance, that uh, Scripture is sufficient uh, to be able to guide us into a relationship with God. You have to have their teaching in order to truly understand God. They deny the Trinity. Uh, and uh, they say that uh, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was insufficient because there's still sin in the world, uh, and it is only through their uh, ministry that God is going to finally be able to uh, accomplish his goals in this life. Isn't it always? Yeah. So uh, they do pay lip service to Jesus. They talk about him, but they believe that true and final salvation is only available through their particular cult group. And, uh, you know, we give you the acrostic, C-U-L-T, to be able to evaluate different uh, groups and their truth claims, especially in these last days. The C stands for Christ. What do they say about Jesus? Well, we see Eastern Lightning denies uh, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. They deny that Jesus is sufficient for today. They've replaced Jesus with their female leader uh, at this particular time. The U is, what is their understanding of Scripture? Is Scripture sufficient or do you need their teaching? Well, they, you need their teaching in order to be saved. The L stands for legalism. They tend to have very strict guidelines in terms of the conduct of their members. Uh, they believe in salvation 
through their continued works, not the finished work of Jesus. And finally, T, who do they tell you to trust? They tell you to trust their particular organization. In fact, uh, they are so paranoid about their organization, they uh, shroud uh, their uh, organization in secrecy. Uh, they, their members will use uh, intimidation and strong-arm tactics uh, to be able to gain new followers. They will pressure you to continue to, uh, to attend uh, their meetings uh, and, uh, and so on. Uh, it's just they are uh, C-U-L-T right down the line, um, a cult. And, so. and note as well, when you see someone getting persecuted, that's no more a proof for them being true than it is for the Muslims in China, the Uyghurs that are yeah. currently being put in concentration camps. Or it's true. It's for, horrible, but it doesn't mean their belief system is true or false. Oh, and yeah. absolutely. But that's the point that being emphasis. It's no more proof of their truth. It's proof of their sincerity. But you can be sincerely wrong. Muslims are persecuted, but that isn't proof of Islam. They usually leave out the fact they're persecuting each other for not being Muslim enough. When we note aberrant cult groups say, oh, you're persecuting me when I'm just questioning them about their faith. Right. Or maybe they are facing legitimate persecution in a financial or even physical sense going overseas. That's no more proof of their belief system's validity. That only shows the impact that belief system has had on the individual. But note, as you said, Isaiah, you can be deceived. That is why you need to trust the substance of the claims. And if Jesus gave us very explicit and plain details about his coming, ironically, in the same chapter that they referenced to name their denomination, or cult, that is, I guess, adding irony to the icing. Yeah, I would just back up uh, a few verses there in Matthew 24, uh, where Jesus himself says, Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. Uh, they believe their female leader of uh, their group is the Christ. Uh, we can say from Jesus' own words here uh, that we should be very, very skeptical. Uh, in fact, verse 24 says, For false Christs and false prophets will rise, and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you. Therefore, they say to you, look, he's in the desert. Do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. Uh, in, in other words, they say, if Jesus has come back in the manifestation of our particular group's leader, uh, don't believe it. Jesus said, uh, I've warned you about that already. And no, it even mentions performing signs and wonders. I don't know what testimonials that they have regarding miracles performed in this woman's name, but that's not even sufficient. We talked about this last week about the ultimate Antichrist and his false prophet performing signs and wonders, yeah. but why do we judge him as a false prophet? Not because of his miracles, not because of his popularity, but because he tells people, what, in the name of the God of Israel, which the Antichrist will claim to be, make an image of this man and worship it. Now, right. that's a direct violation of Exodus 20. Now, are you saying the Old Testament applies to our standards for Christians today? Yep. yep. <laughs> we, we the do. nature of God <laughs> yeah. has, in fact, changed. Its yep. application might be different, but understand the definition of God's nature is still unchanged. If he performs signs and wonders, Deuteronomy 13 says, and tells you to go after another God, even under the same name, don't believe him. That's the point. Yeah. So, um, Here's a question from Monica, dovetailing off of, I think, quite well their whole issue about since the cross uh, is insufficient because of the bizarre proof that sin exists still in the world. She wants to know, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He declared it is finished. I can verify that. Yet we still struggle with sin. 
Isn't it right that when we struggle and fail in sin to repent, there's a few errors in that. Well, to ask for forgiveness to keep our relationship from stagnation. Can you please describe the difference between positional and familial sin and forgiveness? I don't know where those terms come from, Monica, but let's start from the top. So when Jesus died on the cross and he said, it is finished, what was accomplished? Our righteousness before ourselves or before the Father? And is there a difference? Well, yeah, and uh, when Jesus said it is finished, that means that all of our sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven by God. And Colossians note this, wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, not towards ourselves and our immediate sense, otherwise Romans 7 wouldn't exist, but in the legal sense before God in judgment. And that's the key, uh, Monica. You know, some people say, well, if all my sins are forgiven, and I'm a new creature in Christ, and Ephesians chapter 2 says I'm already seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, why do I still struggle with sin? Well, we struggle with sin because uh, basically we are living in uh, a place where the Lord is doing a work within our lives, both positionally and practically. When we say that we're a new creature in Christ, we say we're seated in heavenly places in in Christ Jesus. When Romans chapter 8, for instance, says that whom God called these he also justified, and those whom he justified these he also glorified, past tense. Uh, What that's referring to is our positional righteousness with God, which never changes. But practically, that righteousness has to be worked out within us. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says, We all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. You know, even though we come to God just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. That's the reason we can come to God, because God gives us his unconditional acceptance. Uh, When we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates his own love for us in that way. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says, but having come to God, uh, we are told that God then begins a work within our lives. Maybe the best way to put all this together is to see Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, Monica. We're familiar with Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, for it is by grace that you've been saved, through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The minute you gave your life to Christ, Monica, you were as accepted before God as you will ever be. You are forgiven by God as much as you will ever be. You are a possessor of eternal life as much as you will ever be. Jesus said in one of my favorite scriptures in John chapter 5 and verse 24, that the one who hears my words and believes in him who sent me Uh, has eternal life. They will not come into judgment, but have passed from death into life. Jesus said, it's all been done for you. However, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So having come to Christ, being saved not by our good works, not by getting our act together, but being saved for good works. What's the good work that God wants to do? He wants to take us right the way we are, and transform us into the image and likeness of Jesus. We often say, God loves us just the way you are today, but too much to let you stay that way. And that's why when we do things in, say, our fallen sinfulness, when we act in ways that are displeasing to God, the Lord will come alongside of us 
and convict us of those sins. He'll show us when we get off the beam. And when we get off the beam, when we stumble and fall in the Christian life, what do we do? Well, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 gives us the formula. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, to confess your sins doesn't mean you just mumble some kind of spiritual mantra about your sins. It means to say the same thing about your sin that God does. In other words, when I blow it, when I stumble, when I fall, I have to say to God, God, I acknowledge before you that I have stumbled in this area, but I believe Jesus died on the cross for that sin. Please forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Now, I love that because there's a double blessing involved in this passage. Not only when we come to God and confess our sins, he forgives us in terms of our relationship with him and enjoying that relationship with him. It doesn't mean our positional righteousness is affected at all but our ability to personally experience and enjoy the presence of God is gonna be affected by that. God takes all that static off the line when we confess our sins to one another. But notice as well, it says he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness, not just in terms of forgiveness, but the more we are aware of those areas where we stumble and fall, the more we are honest with God about those areas that we stumble and fall in, the more we come to him and don't try to do cover-up games or rationalize, the more we're going to find ourselves transformed in the image and likeness of Jesus, right? Right, and then we, of course, won't get these terms mixed up like repent as opposed to forgiveness. Now, when I repent, does that mean I don't sin anymore? No, it just means you've done a 180. You've, you've turned from trusting in yourself or trusting in some person, place, or thing or practice as a substitute for a relationship with God, and you've turned back to the true and living God. And what that looks like is what you just described, 1 John 1, 8 through 10. Now, obviously, the refusal to acknowledge a need for forgiveness is also a refusal to repent. Right. But if right. it doesn't start in the heart, it's not going to make a mark on your life. But if, on the other hand, I'd say or use my life as the only metric for my position with God, then I'm going to be depressed. Why? Because I'm focusing on me. Right. And that is the foundation and fuel of pride, which is just as discouraging when it makes us seem bigger than we are as it is when it makes us seem smaller than we are. Yeah. Make sure that God and his word is that metric, and then these terms won't get confused. Um, speaking of, con uh, I guess, knowing your need for forgiveness, I got a question from Yari. He wants to know, what's the Holy Spirit doing? Well, the main thing that the Holy Spirit is doing in this world might surprise a lot of people. Uh, first of all, uh, the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer uh, is uh, doing some wonderful things. Uh, first of all, it is the Holy Spirit who uh, was with us, according to John chapter 14. Jesus says the Holy Spirit is with you and will be in you. He was with us to draw us to salvation. He's the one who opened our eyes to God's truth. When we said yes to a saving relationship with God and put our faith and trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells us. It is the Spirit of God who lives in us. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, we are told that if you aren't indwelt by the Spirit of God, you're not a believer at all. So the Holy Spirit is with us. He is in us, Jesus promised. But in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, as far as believers are concerned, he comes upon us as well to give us the power to be witnesses in this world to live the christian life now that can operate in a couple of different ways 
the Holy Spirit's coming upon power gives me the opportunity to be able to move in, in areas of practical love among the people of God. These are what we would call spiritual gifts. In uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, we see these gifts described, and, uh, and uh, the, the philosophy behind them all is that the most excellent way, the greatest spiritual gift is love. Because you've got all the other spiritual gifts, but you don't have love, you're just a sounding brass or clanging cymbal. If you don't have the Spirit, then you're not obviously going to be given that gift, because he's the one who's not only the source of those gifts, but as chapter 12 says, ministers to each one individually as he, not it, wills. Yeah, and and note, that's going to continue even into heaven. Yeah, so uh, we need to understand, it is the Holy Spirit who gives us the power to love one another in the body of Christ. Why? So that uh, non-believers can see God's supernatural love shared among his people and want to get in on it. Uh, that is the main reason that we are still here as a church right now. The Holy Spirit also, as we mentioned, comes upon us to give us the power to be a witness in this world. Sometimes he comes upon us to give us the boldness to be able to speak up. Sometimes he will come upon us and give us words and wisdom and insight that kind of blow us away, like, man, I can't believe I'm, I'm saying this. Sometimes uh, he will come upon us in a way uh, where it almost seems so uh, natural that we forget it's supernatural. Uh, in terms of being able to say the right thing or be able to have uh, insight and knowledge. And every once in a while I'll, I'll do a message and someone will come up to me and they'll be kind of disturbed and they'll say, well, you know, I, I, you know I'm new here and my friends invited me here and you know, I'm really kind of upset because I know you were talking about me up there and they must have told you about what I'm doing or what's going on in my life and I don't really appreciate you sharing those personal details. And I always kind of smile and I go, I have no idea who you are. I have no idea what you've done, but I do know someone who does. And they'll just be like, oh, I can't believe that. Well, you know, that's not something I try to gin up or, or simulate or try, oh man, you know, oh, there's someone out there in the audience with lower back pain. Well, duh, you know, I mean, but the Lord just does it. And, uh, you know, that's why Jesus said these signs will follow those who believe. He doesn't say those who believe will follow signs. So we see the Holy Spirit doing these things in the life of the believer. He draws us to a saving relationship with Christ, indwells us, makes us born again through the Spirit, gives us the power to love one another and to reach out to this lost and dying world. What is he doing in this world? Well, uh, John chapter 16, Jesus said, when the Spirit of truth has come, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Three things that the Holy Spirit is up to in this world today, to convict the world of sin, that is to convince people beyond a shadow of a doubt, what? That they need help, that yeah. there is a need for a Savior. Yeah, exactly. And having seen their need for a Savior, having known that they're separated from God, maybe by their conscience, maybe by uh, you know, a sense of, of emptiness within their lives, then he's going to convict us of righteousness. A right relationship with God is possible because of what Jesus has done for us. And then he's going to convict the world of judgment. What does it mean to convict the world of judgment? Well, essentially that the clock's ticking, that I need to get right today, that today is the day of salvation, that it's a fearful right. thing to fall into the hands of a living God, and I don't want to delay it because I don't know how much time I have left. Now, you know what I really love about this, uh, Yari, is that uh, I don't have to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You know, it's not up to me to become so skilled as an orator or such a master of persuasion 
that I am able by my own human logic to talk someone in to a relationship with God. I don't want to do that, actually. Because if I can talk somebody into a relationship with God, someone can talk them out of it. But if the Holy Spirit himself is the one who comes to you and opens your eyes to the truth, then you're going to have a faith that takes a licking and keeps on ticking. So that's what the Holy Spirit is here to do. Uh, he works from the outside in on those who don't know the Lord. Uh, he causes them to be able to understand God's word apart from the Holy Spirit doing that. The things of God, the natural man, are foolishness. But uh, the Holy Spirit can open our eyes to be able to understand that. He can show us our need. He can even give us the power to respond and uh, invite Christ into our lives, even as a non-believer. And then, of course, there's the things we take for granted, according to the book of Job. If the Spirit of God were to withdraw himself from this world, all life would return to the dust. So since we aren't, in fact, vacuum food, we do, in fact, have that common grace, what it's called, of the Holy Spirit in that regard. We also note that in Revelation chapter 4, kind of the, not just in organic life, but the material stability of this universe is also credited to God in his fullness. Now, what makes me say that? Well, we note that every single unique attribute, with the exception of the incarnation, the Father didn't become flesh and dwelt among us, the Spirit didn't become flesh and dwelt among us, but the Son did. But everything that could be credited to the Father, Son, and Spirit are all unique to them. So if we look at God as creator and maintainer, we understand when we say God, we mean Father, Son, and Spirit equally. They're given that unique attribute. So if it says in Revelation 4, by your will, referring to the universe, it exists and was created, the Spirit of God is included in that mix. So he's not only the introducer, but maintainer, not just of organic life, but literal matter. So noting these are the sort of things that will continue into the end times and into heaven, any existence will be the will of God maintaining it, making it possible to exist. But also noting the personal involvement, that he's not just uh, keeping the Play-Doh from returning into soup, he's making sure that everything in it is able to function, able to exercise the rights that he's given to them, and of course to maintain his consistent character, even allowing themselves to separate themselves from him. So noting those things, uh, Yari, those are some of the things we will still see him doing in the last days, and what we see him doing even today. Nothing has changed. Yeah, hey, and uh, before we launch on into another question, I was looking on our calvarychristianfellowship.com website, and, and Isaiah, I really appreciate you bringing up the uh, subject about Eastern Lightning, but you make an interesting comment that I wanted to comment on as well. He said, uh, my friend sent me a supposed true story from their website, turned into a movie. I was touched slash deceived. Uh, you know, Isaiah, you know, that is a really important thing for us as believers to be very careful about. Uh, every once in a while, someone will come up with a dramatic story about how they came to know the Lord, and uh, you know, people will be very impressed uh, with the drama behind it all. I had this uh, testimony and, that the Holy Spirit confirmed the Book of Mormon is true. Yeah, well, you know, it, e- even in evangelical Christian circles, uh, when I was a young Christian, there was a guy that uh, made the rounds uh, called, uh, he, his name was Mike Warnke, and he wrote a book called The Satan Seller. Uh, which, uh, in which he portrayed himself as a high priest of the satanic church and talked about human sacrifices he had seen. And, and he would have these big rallies and, oh, now I've become 
a believer in Jesus and everybody, oh man, did you, did you read The Satan Seller? And I think it got made into a, a, you know, a movie version and, and so on. And people were like, whoa, you know, this guy, oh wow, you know what a testimony, he was a satanic high priest and uh, then he became a Christian. Only one problem with that. Uh, the places and things and events in The Satan Seller, people started looking into it and they found out it was all made up. It was a complete and total fraud. And there were a lot of people, they would do altar calls at uh, these rallies that he would be at. They would make decisions to receive Christ. And uh, it really stumbled a lot of people because some of these people who came to know the Lord uh, through uh, these rallies and through him speaking, uh, questioned their relationship with God because they were saying, oh, well, you know, if this guy was a total con man, it wasn't true. You know, maybe my relationship isn't true. Well, when I would talk to people like that, I would say, well, did you receive Mike Warnke as your personal savior? And they would say, well, no. And I said, well, did Jesus lie about his life and his teaching and what he had done? And so, well, no. And I said, well, put your faith in Jesus. Don't put your faith in these people who come along and, uh, you know, produce these very slick uh, demonstrations of these things. Because, you know, that, the problem with testimonies, they're great. Uh, but uh, they can be true or not true. You know, what God has done in our lives is a very important thing for us to share, but it shouldn't be something that puts the focus on us. A real testimony, uh, Isaiah, is one that focuses a person uh, upon who Jesus is and what he's done. And so, uh, you know, if a group gets highlight through, highlighted through a person's testimony, if a pastor, uh, if a program gets highlighted through a person's testimony, I'm always, you know, it always, there's always a check in my spirit about it. It always seems a little off because uh, we, like Paul uh, said in uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, should preach Christ and him crucified, not ourselves. So very important for us to make that distinction. Just wanted to get that commented. All right, and we got about 30 seconds before the music turns out and this uh I guess contradiction, not actually, but it might get a little technical. So don't want to have to rush a keen topic, but we will be doing apologetics Monday or Tuesday, Tuesday tomorrow. tomorrow. Wednesday for those listening on Reach Radio. Just to recap, though, if you run into a contradiction, we do have time to clarify this. Make sure they know what a contradiction is. A violation of the second formal law of logic, A cannot equal non-A, two things in the same way, in the same sense, can't be true, and cancel themselves out. The problem is when people say contradiction, it's just a big long word that they think means difference. And if you actually call their bluff, that's step two, clarify in the passages that a difference of detail is not a cancellation. But of course, you need to make sure the person is objective. And of course, we always recommend if I were to answer that question, Question, would you consider giving your life to Jesus? Of course, in the days of modern uh, internet, that's rarely followed through on, but it doesn't mean you can't ask. God bless you. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.